1: This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC.
2: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you?
2: Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Um, Hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, October 2nd. Today, the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia, the isolated homeland security chief, and a stunning discovery in a basement.
3: One year ago, October 2nd, that is the day when Jamal Khashoggi walked into a consulate in Istanbul and he didn't come out. And what do we know about what happened to him there? Eventually, we came to learn that he was dismembered by a group of Saudi agents and his body was
2: removed. And to this day, we do not know where that body is. And it's important to point out that Jamal Khashoggi was a columnist for The Post and that it is widely believed that he was killed in that consulate because of his open criticism of the Saudi Arabian royal family. That's right. The CIA has determined with medium to high confidence that the Saudi crown prince Mohammed bin Salman ordered Khashoggi's killing.
3: That has been something that has been a stain on the effective leader of the Saudi government and his relationships all around the world. It has been a stain among European leaders.
2: I'm sure the whole House will join me in condemning the killing
4: of Jamal Khashoggi in the strongest possible terms.
3: It has been harshly condemned in the United States, in leaders in Congress.
1: The murder of of Khashoggi is an atrocity and an affront to humanity. And the days after his disappearance, members of Congress, both sides of the aisles, both sides of Congress, demanded information and dedicated ourselves to holding the perpetrators accountable.
3: And Republicans as well. MBS, the Crown Prince, is a
4: wrecking ball. I think he's complicit in the murder of Mr. Khashoggi to the highest level possible. I think the behavior before the Khashoggi murder Was beyond disturbing, and I cannot see him being a reliable partner to the United States.
2: For the past year, Mohammed bin Salman has been quiet when it comes to Khashoggi, at least until this week, when 60 Minutes aired an interview in which he fully denied any involvement with the killing.
0: Absolutely not. This was a heinous crime. But I take full responsibility as a leader in Saudi Arabia, especially since it was committed by individuals working for the Saudi government.
1: What does that mean, that you take responsibility?
0: When a crime is committed against a Saudi citizen by officials working for the Saudi government, as a leader I must take responsibility. This was a mistake, and I must take all actions to avoid such a thing in the
4: future.
2: 11 officials have been standing trial in Saudi Arabia since January. The kingdom has not named any of the defendants, and the trial has taken place behind closed doors.
3: There's very little that we're allowed to learn about the names and identities. What we do know is uh, a top advisor to MBS, Katani, who the United States believes has some responsibility for the murder and has actually sanctioned, uh, is not one of the 11. Uh, And so there have already been a lot of criticisms about how it's being conducted, the lack of transparency, and whether or not it has the scope that um, the international community believes it should have given uh, at least the U.S. intelligence community's understanding that this went all the way to the top. So
2: what was the international response like after Khashoggi's death and after it became clear that Mohammed bin Salman was very likely involved in it? The, the
3: international response was widespread condemnation. This is not something that happens very often. You do not have someone who is a U.S. resident who is a columnist for a prominent U.S. newspaper uh, being killed for the things that they have written. Uh, it is. It was widely condemned and uh, even – Inside the Trump administration, President Trump made a number of remarks uh, at the outset um, saying that this looked like a, a total cover-up uh, and it looked like a grisly murder. Uh, and at the at the original outset, it, it was not downplayed.
5: We had a very bad original concept. It was carried out poorly and the cover-up was one of the worst in the history of cover-ups. It's very simple. Bad deal, should have never been thought of. Somebody really messed up, and they had the worst cover-up ever. And where it should have stopped is at the deal standpoint, when they thought about it. Because whoever thought of that idea, I think is in big trouble. And they should be in big trouble.
3: Shortly after the death and after the immediate outrage, the Trump administration made a very calculated decision. And that decision was that they were going to preserve the U.S.-Saudi relationship.
5: Look, Saudi Arabia's been a really great ally. They've been one of the biggest investors, maybe the biggest investor in our country. Uh, they are doing hundreds of billions of dollars worth of investments and, you know, so many jobs, so many jobs, thousands and thousands of jobs.
3: Not only that, they were also going to preserve the relationship that President Trump his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and his secretary of state had cultivated with the crown prince uh, this young 30-something leader who was supposed to bring Saudi Arabia into a new fold. Even though MBS had been significantly damaged by this and by all of the accusations about his role in the murder, they were going to hang by with him. And President Trump and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo took two different paths about how to rehabilitate that image. For President Trump, he was probably and maybe the most honest actor in this whole situation. He said from the get-go, the Middle East is a messy place and Saudi Arabia buys a lot from the United States. And that's something that shouldn't be easily squandered.
5: But you take a look, it's a rough part of the world. It's It's a nasty place. It's a nasty part of the world. But if what happened happened and if the facts check out, it's something that's very bad. At the same time, they have been a very good ally of ours. They've been helping us a lot with respect to Israel. They've been funding a lot of things.
3: And he said, I'm not one of those stupid people who says I'm not just I'm going to not do business with Saudi Arabia. Uh, And so. From that point on, he set the tone, which was the United States is going to continue its relationship with Saudi Arabia. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo took a different route. Pompeo made these soaring promises that the United States was going to get to the bottom of this. Uh, It would be held accountable. They're going to figure out what has gone on. And they have already taken significant steps of accountability. He frequently cited visa restrictions on 22 people suspected of involvement in Jamal Khashoggi's murder. And every time he's asked about it a year out, he says the same thing. We are going to get to the bottom of it. We're not ruling out future steps. But here we are a year out and no one has been charged with their involvement in the murder. We still do not have Jamal Khashoggi's body. And beyond that, There have not been further punishments other than saying that you can't travel to the United States. And let's be real, anybody who's involved in a high-profile murder of this nature uh, is not going to return to the United States. It's It's just laughable.
2: And I think the the tack that President Trump and Mike Pompeo have taken has kind of given a cue to the rest of the world. Like you look at the international outcry that happened right after Khashoggi's death and the widespread criticisms of MBS. And then you look at how he was greeted at the G20 this summer, where he was no longer this persona non grata that he is beginning to be like back in the good graces of world leaders.
3: Absolutely, the G20 summit was a great example of the you know key Western powers and powerful countries getting close to him, taking photographs with him. In the case of South Korea, signing memorandums of understanding with him worth billions of dollars. Uh, it was a, an important moment as rehabilitation. In the coming weeks, we might see a further moment of rehabilitation as. The Saudi Arabia plans. It's Davos in the desert. When this the de- is
2: like an annual conference and it brings a bunch of world leaders and business leaders and rich people and influential people. and Absolutely. Like their annual investment conference. And last year, a lot of companies were spooked.
3: A lot of CEOs pulled out. According to a attendees list reviewed by the Washington Post, a number of blue chip firms are back in. And so, We've already seen it. It's not the first time, but the renormalization of MBS is coming.
2: And what do you think is driving this renormalization? Is it that people just ultimately don't think that there are going to be more answers on Khashoggi's death or an ability to pin down MBS more than he's already been pinned down, that people don't really care about that death, that political and business relationships with Saudi Arabia are just so advantageous that they can't be sacrificed?
3: Yeah. I mean, we are talking about Saudi Arabia. We're talking about one of the world's largest producers of oil. It's what drives the global economy. And so to the extent that Saudi Arabia and its leadership is inconvenient, that can become inconvenient for business leaders as well. And so there was an incentive to go business as usual if MBS was not going to be removed. And the U.S. made clear from the beginning that it was not going to make an effort to recommend, pressure, or lobby uh, the Saudi rulers to remove MBS. So with that With that settled, it was going to
2: return to business as usual. So even though MBS has come out pretty unscathed from this, honestly, a year later, do you think that there are long-term ramifications for him and for Saudi Arabia from the aftermath of Khashoggi's death?
3: Yeah, I mean, a number of analysts are divided on this. I mean, some say MBS has come out unscathed. Uh, the Trump administration has successfully rehabilitated him on the international stage. Others say not so fast. They look at the U.S. Saudi relationship as something that has been tacitly or at least fully, in some cases, endorsed by both parties in the United States. And now the U.S. Saudi relationship has become a source of partisan tension. There's a lot more questions about the U.S.-Saudi relationship. There's a lot more questions about the billions in dollars of arms sales the United States send over to Saudi Arabia. There's a lot more questions about scrutiny of the U.S. Uh, support for the Saudi coalition in Yemen. Those things have been tested in ways that they've never been tested before. And so there. It, it, some analysts are looking at this and saying – Uh, While MBS is temporarily okay, the U.S.-Saudi relationship might have been permanently damaged.
2: John Hudson covers national security for The Post. A memorial service was held today outside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, where Khashoggi was last seen. There were speeches from Jeff Bezos, the owner of The Post, Fred Ryan, the publisher of The Post, and Khashoggi's fiance, Hatice Cengiz.
6: Last year today, I was standing here. I was a girl in law waiting for my man to come out of the consulate. We wanted to go to dinner We wanted to invite our friends to our wedding. Now, after a worse year in my life, I stand here broken but proud. Kevin McAleenan is the acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, and he was put in place after Trump removed Kirsten Nielsen from that job back in April. I'm Nick Miroff. I cover the Department of Homeland Security and Immigration Enforcement for The Washington Post. McAleenan, to me, is one of the most fascinating figures in the whole Trump administration. He is essentially in charge of one of the most important issues to the president, that being immigration enforcement. He is the acting DHS secretary, but um, in the six months that he's been on the job, his focus has almost entirely been on trying to get the crisis at the border under control.
0: CBP is facing an unprecedented humanitarian and border security crisis all along our southwest border.
6: This is a hugely important issue to the president and the White House and the president personally have seen it as a liability for his reelection. How could a president who runs on a tough immigration message then preside over the worst kind of border crisis in more than a decade with, let's remember in May, 144,000 people being taken into custody along the border? We haven't seen numbers like that in more than 12 years. And so McAleenan's job was to get that under control.
2: So in the six months since he stepped into this acting role in the middle of this crisis, how successful has he been in trying to manage it?
6: Well, he's been really successful. I mean, if we're just looking at the raw numbers, the number of people taken into custody each month by U.S. border agents is down by two thirds since that peak in May. The administration has also implemented a series of executive measures that are designed to prevent another big surge of this type. And and personally has managed to secure bilateral agreements with Central American countries that will potentially allow the United States to send asylum seekers from the U.S. border back to those countries. We've also got a deal with the Mexican government that you'll recall came after the president threatened Mexico with tariffs that has resulted in the U.S. sending more than about 50,000 people back into Mexican border cities, into very, you know, dangerous cities to wait on the Mexican side of the border while their cases are are processed in the U.S. courts. All of these measures have made it significantly more difficult for Central Americans to come across the border and be released into the interior of the United States while they have some kind of pending immigration claim. And so, you know, he has done the one thing, he has delivered on the one thing that mattered the most to the president, which is to drive the border numbers down, even though he doesn't talk about immigration or message on immigration the way that other officials in the and the Trump administration do.
2: How does he talk about or message about immigration, especially if he, it sounds like his big job is basically to execute exactly what President Trump wants. It is,
6: and he has done that. He has been at the center of so many of the Trump administration's most controversial immigration enforcement measures. And yet, one of the things that's notable about the way he even talks about immigration enforcement is he doesn't use the term illegal aliens. Um, he talks about vulnerable families, and he speaks about migrants not as as a kind of criminal horde that is that is invading the country, but as as vulnerable families who are um, who are you know being victimized by smuggling organizations, and who are mostly coming here you know for for economic reasons or for or for you know respectable reasons, but not that they're some sort of grave threat to American. Security. Security. He comes from a kind of you know more traditional law enforcement perspective and wants to try to maintain and sort of protect DHS and the immigration enforcement mission from this kind of extreme polarization that, is, that has occurred under Trump.
2: And what are some of the ways where he kind of comes into conflict with President Trump or President Trump's ideas when it comes to how to perform border enforcement without making it highly politicized.
6: Well, that's gotten him into trouble several times. There was an episode earlier this year when ICE... The immigration and customs enforcement, you know, had this uh, what was called the family operation. They were ready to go forward with a mass roundup of Central American families that had that had come across the border and been released into the interior of the United States and had not shown up for their court dates. And so ICE um, had this plan on 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 the shelf for a while and was eager to put it into practice. Um, but at right at that moment, you know, McAlinen was arguing um, uh, was was pleading with lawmakers for a for a four point six billion dollar Supplemental Emergency Package to alleviate some of the worst conditions at the border, and so he didn't want to inflame the Democrats. So he was trying to to win support for this for this aid package, and he was also concerned that this would result once more in the separation of of children from their parents. He was very much you know burned by the by his his role in in, in the zero tolerance family separations of last year. Regretted um, his his role in that. And he said
2: that he said that he regrets helping to put child separations in place.
6: That's right. He played this central role in one of the most controversial things that the administration has done, and now recognizes that publicly as a mistake, and has said that he would not do that again. He has told, um, when he took the acting secretary job, he told others that he would resign before he'd have to separate children from their parents again. That it was one of the most damaging episodes, and that it had, in his words. That CBP and DHS had lost the public trust, that had done something that was so beyond the pale that they had really undermined, you know, their support among um, the American public.
2: So it sounds that in a lot of ways he's trying to tamp down on the harsher impulses, sometimes coming from President Trump or from the White House on immigration.
6: He is. And that's what's made him so much of an outsider in this administration he's done things just in the past few weeks that you wouldn't really expect from other Trump officials, particularly at a time when things are getting even more combative and contentious. He gave a a big speech um, last month uh, that was sponsored by, notably sponsored by the Brookings Institution and by Heritage, that was about the risks of domestic terrorism and white nationalism, really Hmm. kind of saying some of the most strongest statements that anyone in this administration has come out with about the growing threat of of these types of groups, um, you know, to American national security. And so that's like something you wouldn't, you know, necessarily expect at this moment. Um, He also reversed, uh, you know, an effort by um, Ken Cuccinelli, the acting director of US citizenship and immigration services, who is more of a hardliner. Um, He had, uh, you know, pushed a proposal that would have um, basically ended a program that allows um, uh, migrants who are in the country um, facing deportation, allows them to stay if they're undergoing some sort of Life-threatening, you know, medical care, um, and they have some. Some of it's called medical deferred action, um, and so uh, you know, he wanted Cuccinelli wanted to end it, and McLean came in and reversed that and and said no, and so you had a Trump administration official doing something to actually kind of um, you know help um, you know migrants in the country illegally, not something you would expect, but you know, again, that's an example of the way he's tried to kind of moderate some of the harsher edge.
2: So. At what point does that come into conflict? Right? Because I mean, you've reported on the fact that President Trump had wanted to put spikes on the top of a border wall to deter people from trying to cross. We've heard more reporting, like from the Times this week, that there was discussion about putting a moat with alligators and snakes on the border or trying to shoot at people who were crossing the border. When you pair that with this person who is, at least for now, in charge of this agency, who's taking a much more moderated approach, talking in a more humane way, What did he have to say about how much his thinking and his actions are, in many ways, at odds with his bosses?
6: Well, I I think that has become a growing source of frustration for him. He, in our interview, talked about how he, he does have operational control of the Department of DHS. He can coordinate the response at the border, for example, but he feels like he has lost control of the kind of public messaging on immigration enforcement as other figures like Cuccinelli or the acting commissioner of CBP, Mark Morgan, are out there very much embracing the president's kind of harsher impulses and rhetoric and certainly appear more like the kinds of officials you would want as surrogates in a campaign mode versus someone like and who actually has, you know, experience, you know, running these agencies and has been running them. And so one of the great ironies of McAleenan's tenure is that he's been very effective at the thing that has mattered most, getting this crisis under control because he does have the experience, but just tonally and message-wise, he doesn't really fit in this administration and, you know, has been very conflicted about implementing some of these measures, you know, that are going to be his legacy, you know, in that job.
2: And if he is the acting secretary of DHS, he has not been formally nominated by President Trump, that difference in rhetoric and tone, what does that say about his potential future?
6: I think his potential future looks more and more shaky. I mean, he has been in the job, in the acting role, longer than any other acting head of DHS since the creation of the department after September 11th. You know, this is an agency that was formed after the September 11th terrorist attacks. And since then, successive U.S. presidents have placed a big emphasis on having a Senate-confirmed senior figure in that role to sort of reassure the American public that there was somebody at the wheel. Here we have him in this acting capacity for now six months with no sign of a nomination, even though he's basically done the job the way that the White House has wanted. And, and that speaks, I think, a lot about the way that the, that the Trump administration is running the government and leaving so many of these basic functions of, of government and of administration in, in, this, in this kind of disorganized and ad hoc way.
2: Nick Miroff covers the Department of Homeland Security for The Post.
1: What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC. And brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.
2: And now, one more thing. A newly discovered audio recording.
4: You hear people yelling. And you hear these planes going over. This incredible din of any aircraft fire. The uh, correspondent's trying to narrate what's going on, and his voice is, uh, you know, drowned out in different parts by the racket of the gunfire. Because
5: it seems there's been none any of the ships around us at all. did see nothing in the night. No fires or anything of that kind. Here we go again. Another plane's come over.
4: You're hearing D-Day. You're hearing the battle uh, underway. My name is Mike Ruane, uh, and I cover uh, history, among other things, for The Washington Post.
2: The original audio recording was discovered by a man named Bruce Campbell, On Monday, Campbell donated these tapes to the National D-Day Memorial in Virginia.
4: He found these things about 30 years ago in a house that he bought up on Long Island. And um, he didn't know what they were. They were in the basement of his house, dusty and in boxes. The house had been the vacation house of an executive of a company in New York that manufactured this very primitive tape recording machine. Called a record graph, which is what the correspondent used, this guy George Hicks, on the deck of the ship the night of D Day.
5: are still going up, and now the plane has probably gone beyond. Looks like we're going to have a night tonight.
4: Bruce Campbell, who now lives in Florida, didn't know what to do with this stuff. He didn't know what it was, didn't know what these tapes contained. And over the course of the years, he did a lot of research and found a technician in England who was familiar with this now long obsolete recording machine, took these tapes over to England, and when they played them, they heard this incredible george hicks report from the night of d day
5: something burning is falling down through the sky and circling down maybe a hit plane
4: there's always stuff cropping up on on history fronts all over the place i mean that's one of the things that i love about my job because there's so much history stuff that gurgles up all over. I just think it's an incredible find, and it may be even bigger than we realize. We may not really know how important this stuff is until experts are able to go through it all and put all the pieces of this basement puzzle, if you will, together. And you know, who knows how important this could be in, in, in the end.
5: We've had a few minutes pause. The lights of that burning Nazi plane are just twinkling now in the sea and going out.
4: People should go into their basements and look around.
2: Mike Ruane writes about history for The Post.
5: Now 10 past 12 in the... German air talk seems to die died out. To recapitulate.
2: And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. And if Post Reports has become a part of your daily routine, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you use. One listener named B. Conan left a review last week. They said, I'm subscribed to the Post newspaper, which I do enjoy reading, but Post Reports is still the best 28 minutes of my day. Thanks for spending the time with us, B. Conan. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
1: What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.
0: Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced. From the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beat brand for heart health support, the new Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10